Thank you, worship team, leading us in songs of praise, focusing uh, on the salvation that we have. It's by grace in Christ Jesus. Wonderful truths. Uh, hearty amen to those songs. And, uh, <clears throat> before we get into the text this morning, I just want to make an announcement just by, uh, as an appropriate reminder for all of us, particularly for the, our church body, and that is the members of this church body. Uh, those of you that are members of this church body, uh, we want to remind you today we have a, a church family meeting. And it's just a, and I want to encourage all of you to please come and join us for our church family. It's a very important church family meeting for us. All, all church families are, are important, uh, but whenever particularly we have to conduct business, we really need everybody here. We, we need everyone to, to participate in that. We want everyone to participate in it. So it's at 1.30 today. Uh, just, we're going to have, a, normally as we have church family meetings, we have a lot of the reports of different ministries we, uh, uh, in the church, elders reports, pastors reports. We also sometimes have new members. And uh, today, I think we're going to have a, a missions report, too, so we want to be there for that. But I think uh, one of the things that we need your participation particularly in is going to be we're going to uh, be confirming or asking you to affirm by vote uh, our, the elders' unanimous call to uh, extend it to our, those two young men to come and join us and come alongside here as our assistant pastors. And so we, we need your participation. We would like to know that you affirm this decision, and so you're, it is uh, we cannot proceed, we will not proceed without uh, your affirmation. So we need all members to be, please be uh, participate uh, this afternoon. That's at 1.30, and I know that some of you have children, uh, young kids, you, got, you know, it's hard for them to stay for the whole meeting. So we've, particularly for those, it's because of the votes important, we want to put that uh, near the beginning of the meeting. So reminder, please don't be late. You go grab lunch, you come back, you know, we'll start at 1.30 or so. Uh, please just be on time, all right? All right. With that said, uh, please open your Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7 is where we're going to be. We're going to continue our study through this uh, wonderful letter that Paul wrote to Titus, who was ministering on the island of Crete. Titus chapter 3. Our verses this morning are 3 through 7, but I want to read for us uh, verses 1 through 11 to give us the, uh, a little greater context to uh, the verses that we look at today, because they are part of this context of chapter 3, this, uh, the importance of the church conducting itself in godliness. So Titus chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. 
But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject the factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. This book that Paul gave to Titus to instruct the believers on Crete. Not only, Lord, had a, a purpose to the, the saints in that day, but Lord, it has a purpose for the saints of this day gathered here. Father, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes for your word. May you cause your truths to be conveyed to us so that we would hear these reminders, the reminder to godly conduct, the reminder to, to be uh, about characterized by good deeds, the reminder that of, the, of the reason for why we are to conduct ourselves in this way, the reminder, Lord, that we are of the ramifications if we do not. We thank you, Lord, for these reminders. And Father, the truths that we look at this morning, especially for those of us that have been believers for any period of time, are old truths, fundamental truths. Lord, may they not be truths that we take for granted. Cause us to hear these truths once again afresh, as if it is the, was the first time even. Cause us to be, to be enraptured with these truths, that they would serve its purpose to remind us and motivate us and be the reason for us as a church to conduct ourselves in godliness before our world. Lord, we ask that, you're, that you would teach us through your word this morning. We pray also that if, if there are any here who do not yet know you as their Savior and Lord, that through your word, that they would come to understand what Jesus Christ has done for them, that they would come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, today. Lord, we pray that you be glorified now as we listen to your word. Lord, speak through me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you, many of you follow. I, I think I had maybe one person in first service. So I, I doubt any more I would have hands in this service. But you know, if you like to follow the Christian blogosphere, you can kind of always read up on fascinating uh, things that are going on in the, in the Christian church. And uh, sometimes this week I, I read, I came across just a, some blogs about this kind of like a, well, you know, internal I'll call it a battle, but, you know, debate between Christian, Christian leaders, godly Christian leaders whom I respect, uh, over basically, uh, well, uh, basically the, the role or the importance of, of good works or being, conducting ourselves in godliness in evangelism. And that's at least how I, I saw it. Of course, it was basically framed with, with regards to, the actual issue was, uh, can, should Christians involve themselves in having... Um, uh, uh, dialogues, you know, with interfaith dialogues. I, I think IFD is the short uh, kind of initial for that. Interfaith dialogues with other religions, other religious leaders, in, for the sake of uh, basically uh, understanding them better and uh, coming to knowing where the difference is, as well as what may be common ground, if there, if there is any common beliefs. But ultimately, understand our differences so that uh, Christians can be equipped and those who are there can understand and respect one another, but also be better equipped to, to witness and so this, this took place, and this interfaith dialogue took place, and, and so there was uh, basically some leaders that were criticizing it and, and debating whether that was actually necessary or actually helpful or really whether it was actually sinful or not. 
And this brings up a question for us, and it, it, it leads to a bigger question. And this is the bigger question I wanted to ask ourselves, is what is the role of good works? Or good, and these are actual deeds we do, but also godliness. The godly deeds we do, what is the role of that with regards to our commission as to make disciples, with regards to making disciples, with regards to evangelism as a church. Now, there are some who say that it is absolutely not necessary. And I, I think I get what they're trying to get, what they are aiming. They say, if evangelism is defined as communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ with the purpose of leading the hearer to salvation, then isn't communicating the gospel, isn't just speaking the gospel, isn't that enough that we... The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who hears, right? To everyone who believes. It's not, the gospel is not the, uh, it's not the good deeds that are the power of God for salvation. And those who criticize uh, the, the role of, of the necessity of good works in, in, uh, in evangelism also would point out um, the, some churches or ministries that, that are focused, or became focused upon uh, ministries of, of mercy, ministries of social justice. And they would say, they would point to organizations that focus on these social justice issues, uh, and along, but somehow along the way they forgot the gospel. And we're aware of some of these large organizations in our world that are like that. They exist, they were once Christian organizations, they, they existed for to, to do social justice, social mercy, but then along the way they forgot the gospel. They feed the hungry, they home the, uh, the house the homeless, they educate the ignorant, uh, but they don't preach the gospel. So some of these are re- reasons given to why good works are not uh, essential or not necessary for evangelism. I myself fall on the other side, or at least uh, an- another side. While I do agree with the criticism of, of any church or, or Christian organization that would leave out basically the Great Commission in everything we do. You want to just do good deeds, you want to do justice, but you leave out the importance of making disciples. You leave out the gospel message, which is the message of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave for our salvation. But I believe that despite that, the Bible is clear that doing good deeds plays a significant role in reaching the lost. Now, I might not say that evangelism, uh, that Good works is necessary for evangelism. But I would say that we are obligated to do good works as we go about our evangelism. We are obligated to do it. The scriptures teach us that we are to do good works and we are to speak the good news. They cannot be divided. They go hand in hand. Mercy, justice must be accompanied with the proclamation of God's mercy and God's justice. I would, I would acknowledge that giving a hungry person some food or giving a thirsty person a drink is not alone going to save them. But it shows our care for them. It shows our love for them. And it corroborates the very message of God's love for them that we are about to tell them about. The same would go for any acts of mercy or justice or kindness that we would show. 
even if it never leads to a, a, a witnessing opportunity, even if it never leads to uh, the opportunity to share the gospel with them coming to know Christ, God is glorified by our good deeds for the sake of a witnessing. For this is what Jesus taught himself in John, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In this passage, if you're familiar with it, is about being salt and light in the world. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is telling us that let your light shine before men. How? By our good words? No, that they may see our good works. We shine a light in the world by our good works, and that shines to the world of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that people will see that and they will glorify our God and the Father, even if they never come to believe what we believe, but hopefully they will. They will know that we, as who by our deeds, point to others of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is also why, in this letter of Titus, we see this repeated theme of good works and good deeds. That good works, good deeds, godliness is a necessary result of the sound doctrine of the gospel that we hold to. You cannot hold to gospel truths and not live godly life. We see these confirmed in, in particularly in two places in the book of Titus. We first saw it in chapter 2, verse 11 to 15, where the motivation for godliness among the Christian community was what? was the fact that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That was the reason for why we ought to, to conduct ourselves in godliness with each other. But the second one is our passage today, in chapter 3, verse 3 through 7, where the motivation for the church to behave godly in the world, as we saw <coughs> described for us in verses 1 and 2, reiterated even again the, in verse 8, the motivation for this, the reason for this is because, we'll see in our text, the kindness of God has appeared to save us. See, this book teaches, Titus teaches that our good deeds testify to the power and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It confirms, much like, if I could say in an analogy, like the miracles in Jesus' day and the apostles confirmed the message that they brought, so our good deeds, in a similar way, testify to the truthfulness of the gospel message that you and I proclaim. Our text today reminds us then of the reason for a godly church. That's the, kind of the title for our sermon. A church that is characterized by godliness and good deeds is one that is going to shine the light of Christ into the world we live by godliness and our good deeds. We're going to be engaged in it. We're going to be zealous for it. We're going to be characterized by it. The world may not believe what we believe. They may say, I disagree with that church. But that church, they do a lot of good deeds. And we, can, we commend them for that. And we glory in their God. And hopefully they would come to save knowledge of Christ. Last week in the first two verses of chapter 3, Paul instructed Timothy to, or Titus to remind the church on Crete to conduct themselves in godliness in the world. And you, we looked at that in detail last week. You can go to the, listen to the sermon on that. But we're to conduct ourselves with submission, obedience, uh, being about, ready to do good deeds, to, to, to not be slanderous, to be peaceable, gentle, and to be showing every consideration, every meekness towards others. Here in verse 3 to 7, the apostle then follows it with the reason why. The reason is the gospel of Christ. And so these 
verses, 3 through 7, is really a reiteration of the gospel for us. It's familiar to us, but it goes into, into detail. And so for us, these are familiar truths, and they are clear-cut truths. And in the context of the reminder of verse 1, really, these are also part of the reminder that Titus is to give to the people on Crete. And so we, as an outline, we see two clear-cut reminders. They're clear-cut. You, once you see the outline, you can say, yeah, pretty clear-cut, of why the gospel of Christ motivates the church to conduct itself in godliness and good deeds in our world. So that's where we're going to go. Uh, let's take a look then at these two points. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on point number two, right, which is the most important point. But one cannot grasp that second point apart from our first point. And our first point we find in verse 3. And the first point is this. The first reminder is that we were once hopelessly lost. We once were hopelessly lost. Verse 3 uh, <clears throat> Paul writes, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. This verse rem- uh, teaches us that remembering your condition before salvation, remembering what you were like before you were saved, motivates you to conduct yourself in a way that reflects the gospel of Christ. Because the gospel of Christ has changed us. All of us, um, you know, when we share our, our salvation testimony, when we have people come and join the membership, they share their salvation testimony, we usually ask them to tell it in uh, three parts. Before, how, and after. Why do we do that? Because we believe that the gospel changes us. And we talk about our life that was before Christ and how we came to know Christ. And then we talk about, well, what's, how's my life changed because of Christ? How can I meet the creator of the universe, the Lord and Savior of, 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 all, of, of, of mankind, the Lord of lords, the King of kings? How can I have him as my Savior, know him as my Lord and Savior, and not be changed? Right? Our lives are changed and transformed because we know him. Well, this is, so in verse 3, we see this description of what we once were. The word, the conjunction for, and, uh, <clears throat> indicates uh, that Paul is giving the reason for the conduct described in verse 1 to 2. The reason for the godliness, the good works that we're supposed to be about. This is the reason. For we also once were. You've got to observe the tense there. This is what we once were like. This is not what we are like. This is what we once were like. This is, by the way, not referring just to Paul or just to Titus or, or just the Cretan believers. But this describes, if we look at the rest of Scripture, this really describes all of us before we knew Christ. Paul aims to describe human sinfulness in general, our total depravity apart from Christ. How does he describe the sinner without Christ? If we're going to describe the sinner without Christ with one word, it is foolish. That we, without Christ, are foolish. In fact, uh, the, if we were to look in the Old Testament, we were to look for a definition of fool, and probably the most common definition that you would think of, most of us would think of, is what is the definition of a fool? The fool is the one who says in his heart that there is no God. Yeah, exactly. There is no God. That is ultimate Psalm 14.1, Psalm 53.1 are places that describe this. That the fool in his heart is without understanding because he says there is no God. <laughs> That's, can, how foolish is it for a finite human being who is limited to this place, only one place on earth in this great universe, to have the confidence to say, 
you know, I haven't really been everywhere in this universe. I've not learned everything there is. I've not studied all of the things. But I'm confident that there is no God. That is the epitome of foolishness. On all of us, we're like that. All of us, at one point or another, said, there's no God. And if we did believe in a God, we believed in one of our own making, of our own choosing. <laughs> I remember when I, before I was Christian, I believed in a God uh, who basically would give me A's on my tests. And I could pray to him regularly so that I get A's. That is a God of my own making. That is not the God who we worship. The God who we worship is not the one who gives you A's on your test. So if you're praying for that, stop it. Okay. Just study harder. All right. Uh, that's just application for all you young people out there. All right. Anyways, the word fo- foolish, uh, you know, all of us basically were foolish. And when we deny God, it's like denying one plus one equals two. If you don't know one plus one equals two, you're not going to get the rest of your math. You're not even going to get the rest of your math problems right, right? Because that's, that's a fundamental uh, part of math. When you deny the ultimate reality that there is, you say there's no God. If you say there's no God, then it influences everything. We, we see this world a world without God. We try to interpret everything without God. We look at the stars and the universe, the skies, and the beauty that's out there, the, the wonders in looking in space, and, I, and we're like, hmm, chance and time. Because we don't believe in a God. But when you believe in a God, you say, wow. That's God. God made that. God created this world. What a powerful God we have. I must want to see, I, I want to seek out this God. Our foolishness leads us then to the rest of this verse that describes what we were like. When you're foolish, when you deny that there's God, well, then, of course, you're not going to obey God. You're going to be disobedient. You're not going to follow his commands. You're not going to follow his ways. What's more, not only if, you do, if you're, you're a fool and you don't believe that there's a God, you're deceived. That is, we're led astray. Isaiah just talks about that. All of us, like sheep, were led astray. What are we led astray by? We're led astray basically by our own ways. By our, we make ourselves gods. Essentially, we decide. Either I decide what's most what's right, or I say, well, the majority decide what's right, or I, I like that that man, what he said, that's what's right. What decides what's right in this world and, and how should we live? Only God. But when we deny his existence, we become disobedient and we are deceived. What's more, we become enslaved to our own desires and lusts because there is no God. We don't live by any morals. We create a God who maybe establishes our own morals. We become enslaved to our own desires and lusts. We live life the way we want to. We would choose what makes us happy. And that can mean falling after, being enslaved to our sins. As people without Christ, then we also become characterized by spending our lives in malice and envy. We want what other people have, and so we have malice towards them. We want what we ha- the others have, so we have envy towards them. And when we can't have it, we fight and we steal, and then we become hateful, right? And we become hating one another. This is a life without Christ. This is what's described in some way or other. Maybe you're not, we were all not to the, to the uh, ultimate extent that these words could describe, but to some way or other, we were, our lives reflected this description. And it begins with the fact that we were all once foolish. We all once said, there's no God. Now, of course, this would not matter one bit if there is no God. But you and I know, brothers and sisters, the Bible says, makes clear, all creation testifies as well, that there is a God. 
This God has revealed himself in his word. And in his word, he tells us there are ramifications, there are consequences for our sin. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, a very similar wording here. He says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So he says, basically, don't do these things anymore. Don't let your life be characterized by these sins. For it is, verse 6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. See, all those things characterize disobedience. And the consequence for that is the wrath of God is going to come upon them. That is God's judgment. God's justice will be done in due time. That there is a day of judgment that's coming. An eternity in hell that awaits all who have rejected Christ. And this is what scriptures teach us. In which we are familiar with. We've learned. And what's more, I love verse 7. Whenever Paul gives a list of sins, he says, oh, this is the world. He oftentimes reminds us, when, and don't forget, this is also you at one point. You too would be like this. Before we get proud and think that, oh, look at the foolish people out there. No, we too were foolish. We too were disobedient. We too were deceived. But, but the consequence of it, we too, like the lost out there in the world today are under the wrath of God. They're under God's judgment. It's good to remember what we were like before Christ. We were, as Paul described in Ephesians, dead in our trespasses and sins. We're helpless to do anything about it. Dead people can't do anything about their life. They're dead. We were all hopelessly lost unable to change our circumstances, unable to do anything to, to save us, uh, ourselves from the wrath of God. And the worst thing of all for us is that we didn't even know it. When I prayed to my God of A's, I didn't know that there's a God of wrath. I saw the, I, actually I prayed to this, I had an old Catholic crucifix. So I was praying to that, you know, the, the God that's on the cross there. I had no idea what that guy on the cross meant. Can you believe that? I had no idea until I went to church and someone told me about Jesus dying for me, for my sins. And now, but now in Christ, all of that's changed, hasn't it? That's all changed. Our lives are now not characterized by those things, but our lives are generally characterized by wisdom, obedience, truth, being slaves of righteousness, spending our life in benevolence and charity, loving, loving one another even all of which are reflected in how we conduct ourselves in the world. And this ought to be true for every single believer in this room. This is what we once were. And that's why we ought not to conduct ourselves and continue in ungodliness. Why we should? Because if we conduct ourselves in ungodliness, it is a contradiction to the message of the gospel, the gospel of truth of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. How can we still, Paul, Paul would write, according to Romans 6, how shall we continue in sin? It's, it makes no sense. May it never be. It contradicts our message when we continue to live in sin. We ought to live our lives in godliness because that's what Christ saved us to do. Now, this leads to our second point in the end of our time of how the gospel of Christ motivates us to godliness. That is, in the depths of our sin and helplessness, Wonder of wonders, God saved us. 
pretty obvious for most of us in this room, I think. God saved us. Let's unpack this a little bit for us. And may may we kind of renew our, our appreciation for the salvation that we have and that's given to us by God. In the original language here, verse 47 comprised basically one long sentence. All, it's all kind of connected to each other. But there's grammatically one main idea. If you kind of outline this passage, if you kind of diagram it, if you will, those of you that are uh, well, old school uh, English majors or English students, you used to diagram and you kind of figure out what's the main verb, what's the main, what's the main subject, what's the main predicate here. Well, the subject is he and the predicate is saved us. He saved us. God saved us. This, is, this passage in verse 5 is the key, ver- key idea of that God saved us. God saved you and me. The conjunction, again, I want to emphasize conjunction. At the beginning of verse 4, the word but connects with what is said here in verse 4 to 7 with what just preceded in verse 3. There's a contrast. Verses 4 to 7 are spoken in contrast to verse 3. This is what we once were, but then God saved us. And together, three, 3 through 7 provides then the continued motivation for verses 1 and 2. The godliness, the godly conduct, and the good works and good deeds that we are to carry out with regards to our world. We can make five observations about our salvation, about how God saved us. Five things we can learn about what God did about the salvation that God has provided for us in Christ. Number one, and first of all, in verse 4, we learn about the God who saved us. The God who saved us. The subject of the one who is, is doing the act of saving us. Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Uh, when that, uh, the, uh, the conjunction when tells us the moment in history that basically precipitated the change in our lives. It's when Christ appeared. When Jesus Christ came into this world, everything changed. This phrase, the kindness of God, our saving his love for mankind, is a reference to Jesus Christ. This word is, is and we know it's, it's similar because it's similar to chapter 2, verse 11, where the same verb is used of, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And we looked at that uh, a couple months back. We know that that was talking to Jesus. Here it was talking about Jesus too, and we can see in, in the greater the context of this passage that it's, it's a reference to Jesus as well. But this word appeared, we looked at it before. We get our English word epiphany from it. An epiphany, it's a manifestation of, divine, of a divine being, an epiphany. And both passages are speaking of the appearance of Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God. God, the, uh, the term God our Savior, uh, however, is not a reference to Jesus. The kindness of God our Savior is a reference to Jesus, but God our Savior is actually a reference to God the Father. It cannot refer to Jesus because of verse 6, because the same, uh, later on, the same actor, the God our Savior, is later on going to save us through Jesus. So Jesus is not saving us through Jesus. God the Father saving us through Jesus. This is a reference to God the Father. God the Father is our Savior as well. And this is not surprising to us, but we're just not used to it. A lot of times we talk about Savior, we think about Jesus, right? The God the Son. But here's one of those passages that talks about God the Father being our Savior as well. And so what we see here is that Christ's appearance is a revelation of God's character. Just as in chapter 2, verse 11, when Christ appeared, he revealed to us God's grace. Here in chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ appeared, he reveals God's kindness and God's love for mankind. 
two aspects of God's character are revealed when Jesus Christ appeared. The first is the word kindness, God's kindness. Now, when we think of kindness, we think, oh, just, you know, kindness in general and goodness in general. And that is kind of the idea. We think of a person who's kind, who's good. And and that is the general definition of the word, a goodness or kindness. But there's also a picture here of generosity and kindness. God is not just one who's, God is not one who's just done a good deed here or there. He's done a kind thing here or a kind thing there. God is always, always continually doing kindness. He's as if he's rich in kindness. He's abundant in his kindness and goodness. He's generous in his kindness and goodness. He's affluent in his kindness and goodness. You know, you think of some, a rich person, you got like bills hanging out their pockets and, you know, stuff in their shirts. They got like $1,000 bills in their, in their backpack, you know, and they just flip it out and they show how wealthy I am. No, God out of his pockets is flowing out kindness and goodness. You would see it's all over him. He's abundantly rich in it. And we take the, take, stop, to think of, to stop to think about it. Even in our own lives, every day, God is abundantly kind and good towards us. He gives us our food. He gives us our family. He gives us our bread. He gives us our homes. He gives us the people in our lives. He gives us our work. He gives us the, just the creation itself, life and breath. He gives us jobs. He gives us many, many other things in this world. And those are just simple things that we take day to day for granted. God's kindness is one that is absolutely generous. But we also, so we see that when Jesus Christ came. It's a, the, it's a, a revelation of God's generous goodness towards us. We also, saw, though, saw God's love for mankind when Jesus came. The love for mankind is a, is a word from which we get the, our English word philanthropy. Philoanthropos means the love of man. And when we think of philanthropy today, we always think about basically wealthy people who, who give out their money. They're philanthropists. They have a love for mankind. But when Jesus Christ came, he, God, revealed, in, in him was revealed God's love for mankind. We think about philanthropists today. We think of a wealthy man like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or, or Mark Zuckerberg who give away much of their money. I recently came across a website describing something called the Giving Pledge. Any of you heard of it? Yeah? No? The Giving Pledge? It's, you haven't heard of it because you're not billionaires. Okay? It's because it's something for billionaires. Okay? So you look it up later on. But it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, in a, you're like, oh, that, that's kind of neat. I, I commend them for, for doing something like this. But... So these billionaires, I think it was Warren, Warren Buffett and uh, Bill Gates got together, uh, I think. And they basically said, we want to give away a majority of our money, a majority of our wealth uh, to charity. And we're going to want to encourage and invite other billionaires in this world to join us in this giving pledge. That they're going to pledge to give away at least half. And so it starts with half. And I think Warren Buffett's up there at 90% of his uh, wealth. He's probably going to give it all by, by the end of his life. But he wants to be generous. And so they call, and it's really cool. It's kind of a neat thing. And I, I think that's a, and they want to do this because they want to change how billionaires live their lives. Not for themselves, but live to change the world. To make the world a better place. To really make philanthropy something that's, uh, you know, common among all the billionaires. And that's, you know, that's commendable. I want to give them credit for that. That's a, that's, that's a good thing for mankind as they give away their wealth to charity. And though we can be inspired by their philanthropy, and I hope, uh, hope uh, you know, we can be in some ways. But I hope we'll not forget, let us not forget, 
that the greatest philanthropist of all, the greatest act of philanthropy in all of human history was when God, our Savior, sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. That is the greatest act of generous generosity that was ever made on this planet. No one else can outgive that act of philanthropy. That act of philanthropy did more for humankind than all the billions and billions of dollars that these billionaires are going to put together and going to use for the good of the good of humankind. That act of philanthropy it was changed our world. Because it did the one thing that nothing else in this world could do, and that is save sinners like you and me. In his incarnation, God gave us the most kind and loving gift that could ever be given. God gave us his son to save us from our sins. And so we see, that's the first point we see, that we learn about the God who saved us. That he's a God of kindness, generosity, but he's also a God of, who loves mankind. And he's done more for mankind than any of us have put together. This leads us to our second observation about how God saved us, and that is that the basis upon which he saved us. This is oftentimes the verse, uh, verse 5 is, is a verse that if we are Christians for any number of time, we're going to memorize this verse. This is one of those key verses about our salvation and how God saved us and why he saved us. It's not of works. The basis. He saved us. There's our main phrase. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We find the main idea. He saved us. He refers back to God our Savior, God the Father. The verb saved us is a familiar word to all of us. Sometimes it's easy for us to forget what it means, though. Uh, But let us remember that God didn't save us from poor health. God didn't save us from poverty. God doesn't save us from low self-esteem. Nor does God save us from having a lack of identity or purpose in life. The context of verse 3 reminds us that God saved us from our sins. He saved us from the penalty of sins. He saved us from the power of sins. He saved us. He's going, he's saving us from the presence of sin. Chapter two, verse 14 of Titus tells us that, uh, tells us that Jesus gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. God saved us from our sins. That's clear in that's clear first and foremost. It's because of our sin that we're under the wrath of God. And, but God sent his son to save us from our sin. But how did he say? What is, on what basis does he save us? It's on the basis of the deeds. which It's not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness. So it's not based upon the, the good works that we do, the good deeds that we do, even the deeds we do as Christians. It's not like we're working now as Christians. We're doing good deeds so that we can kind of pay back to God or kind of earn our salvation. That's not how it works. God's already saved us purely based upon his mercy. We've already looked at uh, uh, verses like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We read it in our uh, scripture reading. Romans 3, 20 is another place. Galatians 2, 16. All these verses reiterate that no one is saved by doing good works. We're not justified. We're not declared right before God because of any deeds we do. We're not saved on the base of deeds. It's not by keeping the law, not by doing, good more, doing more good deeds than bad deeds. It's not by living according to Ten Commandments, nor living by the good golden rule, or any other human standard. All our good works put together cannot save us one, cannot save a single one of us. Rather, God saved us based upon, on the basis of his mercy, his compassion for us, his pity upon helpless mankind. 
God's character. Again, we see so much of God's character fleshed out in salvation, don't we? But here we see God's mercy is the basis for our salvation. It's not of our own doing. Peter would write this, a very similar point, make a similar point in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's God's mercy that caused us to be born again. It's not anything we do. It's not because we believe we're born again. It's purely because of God's mercy that he, we are born again. Out of God's mercy, he did not give the punishment we deserve, but he also gave us new life. We were his enemies. We wanted nothing to do with him, uh, but because of his mercy, he saved us. So we see the basis. It's God's mercy. God's purely his free gift to us. From why God saved us, because of his mercy, Paul moves to how God saved us in the latter half of verse 5. And we see the means by which he saved us in the latter half of verse 5. And we read, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This phrase, this prepositional phrase, really follows the main verb, modifies the means by which God saved us. Now, some would read this verse, see the word washing, and think that, oh, he must be talking about water baptism here. But that's not the case here. It is not the case it's, uh, that there is no salvation by works, none of this baptismal regeneration uh, that some hold to. Paul's previous preceding words had just refuted that. It's by mercy. It's not by anything we've done. Rather, this word washing is used in a metaphorical sense for cleansing, for spiritual cleansing of our sins. We are saved by someone cleaning us of our sins. See, we're all under God's wrath, right? Because of our sins. That's what we need salvation from. We need, we're all guilty because of our sins. We have a sin problem. We all are guilty. And so we need to be cleansed of it. So how do we get cleansed of it? We're cleansed of our sins, this washing, through regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. These three words, washing, regeneration, as well as Holy Spirit, these are words that, that we see together in the scriptures in different places. The first place we might think go to, we might go back to John chapter 3, verse 5, where Jesus has having this conversation with Nicodemus about the necessity to be born again of the water and the Spirit. But before you turn there, Jesus actually in John 3, 5 is referring back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 and 27. And that's the verse I want to point to you. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27. Let me read to you these words. And let me show you how these are really fleshed out here in verse 5. Then I will sprinkle, uh, this is all in the context of the new covenant promise that God makes to Israel, that through Israel, the world, the Gentiles, might also be blessed in this way. He says to Israel, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. See this idea of cleansing. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. He's talking about cleaning them from their sins. I'm going to wash you. Verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. It will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the idea of regeneration, of being, being born again. You're going to get a new heart. Your heart is dead. It's a heart of stone. But God's going to give you a heart that's flesh, that beats. A heart of stone doesn't beat. A heart of flesh does. It lives. So there's a regeneration. Verse 27. Then I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And here we finally see, how is God going to accomplish this? He's going to put his spirit in them. 
and he's going to cause them to, to walk in obedience. The Spirit of God brings about this cleansing, this regeneration. He's a, he's, and that's what we find in verse 5 here. That's by the washing, the cleansing of our sins, that is of regeneration, that takes place when we're regenerated. We have our sinful heart is born again. It's given a new heart. We're a new creation in Christ. And then a renewal begins where we are being renewed. Our, our, our sinful nature that we possess is being renewed, become conformed into the image of Christ. That's kind of all of Romans 12 too. This is all accomplished by the Holy Spirit. God washes us through the regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. He makes causes to be born again. Because, because apart from God, we were all dead in our sins, right? We couldn't, a dead person does, doesn't automatically come back to life. Isn't just born again, right? It takes a supernatural work. <coughs> it takes even someone who is, uh, stops breathing or the heart stops breathing. It takes someone on the outside to maybe uh, put you know, those, those pads on them and give them electrocution shock or CPR, get their lungs going. It takes someone out, external. But all of us, when we were dead, none of us could do anything about it because we're all dead. But God comes through his Holy Spirit and causes us to be born again. It reflects, this part simply reflects the sovereign work of God in regeneration, in our new life in Christ. It's the means by which God then saves us. It's because we're regenerated that within, that he gives us a new heart, a new mind, and new ears to hear, that when we hear the gospel preached to us, we believe it. He had to preach to you hundreds of times, statistics say six times, but anyways, before you heard many times, they say, oh, no, I don't believe that. No, that's, oh, that's brainwashing. No, no, I don't believe that. Oh, you guys just drink the Kool-Aid. No, 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 I, I, no, I'm not going to believe that. Hey, you guys are good moral people. I, I like to go there. There's cute girls there. But no, I'm not going to believe. No, I'm not going to believe. I believe. Thank God for this gospel that was shared to me. You know, it's just, that's just how it works, right? Maybe that was just me. But anyways, God saved us through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Now we, we will move on to the, the fourth. In the verse six, we find another aspect that we can learn about the salvation of God, that salvation, God's salvation of us, and that is the person through whom he saved us. Verse six tells us, this Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, to be precise, verse six here refers to all three persons of the Trinity. The whom refers to the Holy Spirit, he refers to God the Father, and then we see Jesus Christ, our Savior. All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in this verse. It's kind of one of those kind of cool, actually, it's one of those uh, uh, <laughs> questions that you get asked when you're, when you're in your, on your pastoral ordination. Can you show us a verse where we find all three persons of the Trinity, you know, argued, and he's like, uh, I don't know. But, you know, you would come to this verse, hopefully. Uh, other places would be Jesus' baptism. But this is one of the places we see all three persons of the Trinity mentioned. And it teaches us that salvation is the work of not just Jesus, not just God the Father, not just God, but all the work of the triune God. Jesus saves us, we can say. We can say God saves us, yes. We can say the Holy Spirit saves us. All three part have a part. One scholar describes it as the Father initiated our salvation, the Son secured our salvation with his death on the cross, and the Spirit produced our salvation when he 
regenerates us and bringing us to saving faith. See, it's of this Holy Spirit that God poured out upon us richly. This poured out upon us richly. It doesn't mean to, he poured out when the Holy Spirit indwells you at the moment of salvation. This is actually referring to that moment in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was given at the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out on that day. Since the Spirit is the one who affects our regeneration and renewing, without him, none of us would have ever been saved, you see, because he produces in our life. He causes the regeneration. He is the, the cause of our regeneration. He, he's the instrument by which it happens. By this outpouring of the Spirit of by God the Father, though, this, this, this outpouring could only come through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's only because Jesus Christ came, and technically it's because Jesus Christ came and returned to the Father that the Holy Spirit was outpoured, poured out richly to us. Jesus himself says this in John 14, verse 6. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that is the Spirit of truth. And then he says in John 16, 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, that's profound. We wish Jesus would have just kind of rose from the grave and just established his church right there and then, right? But here Jesus explains why. He says, if I don't go, I'm not going to be able to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to be the one that's going to do the work of convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You and I would not be saved if Jesus just decided to establish a kingdom on earth, really, if, you know, hypothetically speaking. His resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, though, brought about the, uh, the outpouring of the Spirit by whom we become convicted of our sins and judgment, our need for Christ's righteousness, by whom that same Spirit does the work of regenerating us and bringing us to saving faith. And so we see the person through whom he saved us. We oftentimes think of Jesus Christ, and that is ultimately him, because he came and he went. But really, it's all three, all three persons of the, of the Godhead that saved us. The fifth and final observation about our salvation, then, we find in verse 7, and that is the result, the result of our salvation, the result for which he saved us, verse 7. We see the another conjunction, so that... So that indicates a purpose, a goal, or result of God saving us. This is the result of it. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The phrase being justified by his grace describes basically our present standing as believers in Christ. All of us are justified by his grace. Before God, we are declared righteous. That's what justified means. We're declared right before God, and it's all by his grace. We're not declared right because of our deeds. We're not declared right by, any, by our, just our conduct. We're declared right, justified by God's grace. It's always been by God's grace. It'll always be God's grace, never by our works. It's our present standing before God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's because of Christ's righteousness. Because he died in our place on the cross, we, by through faith, received this perfect, sinless uh, life, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. So when God sees us who believe in, his, in him, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Even though each time we sin gives another reason for Satan to go before God and say, look at that sinner. 
He deserves to die. She deserves to die for that sin. And each and every time, God says, no, I declare, them, I declare that sinner righteous because of my son who's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Each time there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Each time we sin, each time you feel the guilt, each time you feel, why again? Each time you feel, man, I'm so frustrated with sin in my life. Each time when you confess your sins, when you remember what Christ has done, you remember that you are justified by his grace. This is the hope. And this is, and this is, and having, being justified by his grace, we then have this hope that we are heirs. We're heirs of eternal life. We are waiting as heirs. You know what heirs are? You kind of wait for an inheritance, something you're going to get later on. Uh, when, uh, when, when someone dies, your, the, your parents die or your, your you know, grandparents die, you get an inheritance. And, but we as believers, because we are joint heirs with Christ, and I want to actually I wanna get that verse, Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, and of children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Uh, Stan read this verse earlier, in fact. But the fact is, we are heirs of God because we're heirs with Christ. What Christ inherits in the, in the eternity is what we share in, we participate in as those who are identified in Christ. We're in Christ. We're with Christ. We're with, we are always going to be part of his body. And because wherever Christ goes, we're going to be there. And he's in heaven. And so we have this hope of eternal life, that we're going to be with God in heaven there. Who among us here in this room has not experienced the pain of sin's effect upon our world? Think about it. Sin affects us in so many ways, whether it's someone sinning against you in violence, in malice, in jealousy, hateful words, hateful deeds, We've all experienced the effect of sin in our world through sickness, suffering, and even death of loved ones. All of these things are a result of sin upon our world. We all know it. If you don't know it yet, you will know it. You will. But do not lose hope. For as soon as you start getting a sense of it, it will make you appreciate the hope of eternal life even more. You're going to appreciate Jesus Christ even more. You're going to realize that this world is, this world is not where it's at. This is where I'm at, but this is not where it's at, as we like to say back in my day. Because where it's at is with Jesus in heaven. I'm just here for 70, 80 years. I'm here collecting things, gathering things, moving dust around, finding a little joy in this dust, a little joy in that dust before it turns back to dust. And I wholly, completely forget sometimes that I have a hope of a life, of an eternal life. I possess it now, in fact, even in Jesus, an eternal life with Christ in heaven forever. It's a life that's far longer than 70, 80 years. Yes, there's sorrow here. And when there's sorrow here, we can look to that hope. 
the hope of eternal life with Christ in heaven. And the more long you live, you're going to just realize, man, what are we doing? What am I doing collecting all these things? What am I doing gathering all this stuff? What am I doing it for? You start getting all philosophical. You really start getting like Solomon. You say, oh, vanity of vanities, all this vanity. You really will start saying that. You really will believe it too. Trust me. It's all vanity. And then, but then it's going to make us as believers because we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life, it's going to make us appreciate our eternal life. It's going to make us love Jesus more. And we're going to cling on to him more. It just dawned on me how appropriate that last song that we sung is. All I have is Christ. When I'm in my deathbed, I'm not going to be clinging to my stuff. I'm not going to be clinging to my iPad Pro. Oh, my iPad Pro. Lead me through the shadow of valley of death. No way. And I don't even think about hugging my kids will help me at that moment. I will be holding on to Christ. And I trust that you will be holding on to Christ. And you're going to say, oh, Christ is all I have. This is the only thing I can, this is the only thing I can take from this world to the next. My knowledge of Christ, my relationship with Christ. Nothing else goes with us. Not our stuff, not our family. Well, if they come to know Jesus Christ, they'll come with you. But at that moment of death, it's only Christ that goes with us. He's with us now. He'll be with us in death, in dying. He'll be on the other side. And that's, that's been a great comfort to me. I've been telling you guys as a church, I'm going to keep it real. I've been really, uh, I love what God's been doing, just making me think about the, the death, death. It's been coming, my, the mortality. I love that it, 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 it just makes me uh, reach out for Christ more because I realize we're not here for long. Let's make our lives here last. And so it's in light of these things, in light of all this, this, this salvation that God has saved us for, that we conclude then. Why should we then? We should conduct ourselves in godliness. Because godliness and good deeds and good works in our world, they go hand in hand with the gospel. Because number one, that's how we used to be. As those helplessly lost in our sin. And number two, that's no longer us. Because God has saved us. By his spirit, through his, through his son, Jesus Christ. Good works ultimately testify to the truth of the gospel. We don't do it just so that we make ourselves proud. Like I'm a good, do, good, dirt, good, do-gooder, you know, good deed-doer. Thank you. Uh, just look at me. I wonder if I found, oh, pat me on the back. You know, it's the, the doing good pledge. No, you know. We do good deeds because we know that it shows the transformation of Christ, the God, the Holy Spirit is doing in our life, the renewal that he's working in our life. That evidence is the regeneration that's already worked in our life. He's making us more like Christ. And if we're walking saying we're like Christ, then we ought to act like Christ. We ought to live like Christ. We ought to consider the widows, the orphans, the, the, those who are have, who, people who, have, uh, who are going through uh, difficulty, sickness and disease and suffering. We should think about the children who are helpless. We should think about those who are in prison. We should think about those who are still in slavery. We should think about some of these people and there we, we pass by the homeless around us all the time. But we, we just, we look at it and we, we turn the other way, trying hard not to make eye contact. Our good works that God calls us to do, 
We, can, we, we don't have to even go to the, we don't even have to start with the, the most helpless society. We can just start with our neighbors. What good works do we do? And even with the neighbors that we come across at on a daily basis at our grocery store, at our coffee shop, uh, down the street, around next to our left and our right of us in our homes. Now, I would grant it, a person is not going to believe because of our good deeds. Not because you go buy them a cup of coffee or you go fix, help them fix their flat tire. Are they going to then be saved? They're, good deeds don't save anyone. It doesn't. The good news brings about salvation. They will believe because of the proclamation of the good news. But your good deeds will testify to the power of the gospel to transform lives for his glory. What is the role of good works and good deeds? We're called to do both. We're called to do both. They go hand in hand. God uses them both for his glory. May you and I do that in the days ahead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your just challenge to, to me, your challenge to, from your word to your church today. Lord, help us to examine our lives, to see how we can be more about not just preaching the gospel. Lord, I know many of us here are faithful in doing that, seeking every opportunity to share the gospel with our neighbors and friends. But Lord, help us to also look for opportunities to be intentional, to be zealous, to be engaged, to be careful in doing good deeds so that our deeds might testify to the message of the good news, the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ, that when he appeared, you accomplished our salvation. Thank you, Father, for your mercy, your kindness, your love for mankind that we've learned about today. Thank you, Lord, for this undeserved salvation that we have that's not on the basis of our deeds, but on the basis of your mercy completely. Father, in light of these things, and in light of the life that we used to live, in light of who we once were, Lord, may you cause it to be a motivation for us to conduct ourselves in godliness and good deeds. These things we pray so that, Lord, you would equip this church to be an effective witness for Christ, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.